If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 9. We'll look at verses 13 through 34. Uh, we're not really going to cover everything that's in this long passage, but um, that's what we're looking at. The text is printed in the bulletin for you on the next page, and there are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need. And uh, just if you're looking there, the, the sermon title, I just left it blank accidentally. Sorry. Uh, I got three sets of bulletins ready this week, and I was having a hard time keeping track of what was what. Uh, if you want to know, the sermon is titled Gospel Courage. So, give you an idea of where we're going. Um, uh, maybe you've heard of Shusako Endo's book uh, called Silence, and it was made into a movie recently, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. And um, it's a pretty intense movie. This is not just like a family recommendation, go watch this movie. Um, uh, it's, it's a hard movie uh, about some pretty stark realities that took place in Japan. Uh, it's, you know, it's fiction. Uh, I, I saw the movie. I haven't read the book. Sorry, that's how I am with most stuff like Harry Potter and, you know, whatnot. But um, in the movie, there's, there's two Portuguese, um, they're Roman Catholic priests. They're Jesuit priests, and they travel to uh, Japan. It's during the 17th century. And um, they go to Japan, and they see persecution, and they experience uh, very severe persecution, uh, physical, physical persecution, but especially they, they experience psychological persecution. They're, they're cruelly forced to watch other Christians suffer until they renounce Christ, until the, the leaders of the church apostatize and therefore show all the other members of the church this thing it really isn't worthwhile. Um, uh, they were forced to turn away from Christ and to, to step on an image of Christ um, by watching other Christians suffer. It depicts a historical reality. Persecution was very difficult in Japan. It, basically, Christianity was almost entirely eradicated from Japan and since then, it's been a very slow, difficult work to reestablish the church in that culture. And uh, the movie, Silence, if you do go see it, just be prepared. It's a difficult movie to watch. It, it, it really is a tragic portrayal. Um, the good guys didn't win in this one, right? Uh, it's a tragic portrayal of succumbing to extreme pressure under persecution I couldn't help but think uh, while watching the movie that some gospel clarity might have helped their courage, the way it was being portrayed here. Um, I would never want to condemn those who endure such persecution and cave in to fear and pain like that. I mean, you just look at, at there's plenty of Christians in the scriptures even. You look at Peter, who famously denied his Lord three times, and Christ didn't condemn him. Christ himself did not condemn Peter for failing under persecution. Uh, it was pretty weak persecution for Peter at that moment, but he denied Christ three times. But Christ restored him and transformed him, and later Peter withstood oppressive, intimidating, torturous inquisition and, um, and even faced his own death by crucifixion. He faced it with courage. That's what we hear about in uh, church tradition anyway, is that he was crucified and... Um, and even asked to be crucified upside down so that it wouldn't be uh, so much a reminder of Christ. He said, I, I'm not worthy to suffer the same death Christ did. Crucify me upside down, please. Um, 
So apparently it's possible to face such things, even things such as these, uh, with faith and courage. Persecution, to some degree or another, and in some way or another, is, uh, is a reality for believers. It's a reality for all believers, all Christians, because it was a reality for Jesus Christ as he came into the world and was met with opposition, was met with hostility from the world. And he himself said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too, because you belong to me. So we need to know what's happening with persecution. We see that in our passage this morning. We need to, we need to know what's happening when we're being persecuted. We need to have some gospel clarity about it. We need to think about persecution in light of the gospel and how to meet the fear primarily, the fear that is the weapon of the world, how to meet that with gospel courage. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would um, meet with us now as we read your word, that you would send your spirit to open our hearts to you, to be able to receive your word, to understand it and be changed by it into the likeness of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. This is the man that earlier in John 9, Jesus had healed. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, 
But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So John 9, the the whole chapter is a story that focuses around this this blind man and his interaction with Jesus and and others uh, there in Jerusalem. John 9, the whole chapter is arranged chiastically. Uh, That's a big fancy word. It has a a structure to it. Uh, And I'll explain what that means. A chiasm uh, actually is related to the the Greek letter key, which looks like an X. So... um, so a chiasm is an old literary device of the Hebrews found throughout the Old Testament where the text has a pattern to it, where um, it, it focuses the emphasis on the middle of the passage, basically. So if you outline a text like this, it sort of looks like lines moving together, like they're going to cross. Uh, and so the beginning, you know, very simple way of understanding this, this pattern is, is like A, B, A, right? Uh, or, or a longer one would be A, B, C. B, A, where the C, the point of the, of the meeting there, the center of it, is sort of the emphasis. It's the significant part. So John 9, this whole chapter being arranged that way, John 9 started with a, the question of the, the sinfulness of the man born blind, if you remember that. Was this man a sinner or was it his parents? Who sinned that, that he was born blind? And then at the end of the story, you have the Pharisees proclaiming he was born in utter sin. So that's sort of the A at the beginning and the A at the end, right? And so as the passage steps towards the middle, you have things like the the blind man's questioning by the Pharisees and his testimony in defense of Christ and the debate over whether Jesus is a sinner. And then right there at the middle, at the the point where there's the emphasis of this uh, structure in this passage, right in the center at the heart, the focal point is this parent-teacher meeting. Strangely enough, It's the parent-teacher meeting that's in the middle. This is recorded, and it's not the only thing being emphasized in this passage and taught in this passage, obviously, but but it is being recorded and even highlighted for us, especially because of the persecution dynamic that was present at the time of John's writing. John is writing this, uh, you know, a little bit later than it took place, and persecution was a very real dynamic. John himself, the author, who's recording this account of Jesus and these interactions here, John and all the other the apostles, the, the original disciples who had followed Jesus, um, they had faced similar threats and, and intimidation tactics. And it wasn't just them, it's not just the, the first leaders of the church, but all kinds of regular members and then people who lived after them in successive generations. If you pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's an old book that's they've kept updating it with, uh, with stories and statistics of the church, the persecutions that the church has faced uh, throughout its history, throughout Christian history, all the way through to today. I don't know, if, I don't know how recently Fox's Book of Martyrs has been updated, but uh, you've got things, you know, in, the, in, the Western, in Western culture where the church in Germany during World War II was uh, driven underground. The, the real church, the faithful church, 
was driven underground by the Nazis. Or you've got in the East examples of the church in Japan or in China being exterminated or forced into hiding to have underground worship, right? Or you've got uh, even, even more recently Christians uh, beheaded on beaches in the Middle East. Um, all being forced to comply, forced to renounce Christ, to, to turn away from their faith in Christ and distance themselves from Christ, or else suffer the severe consequences. And, um, and Peter, one of the, the original disciples, he has a letter, First Peter, find it in your Bibles, is, is pretty explicit. He's pretty explicit in addressing the issue of persecution. First century Christians needed help to face the sufferings that they were, they were facing because of their relationship to Christ. They needed help because they faced things similar to what this blind man and his parents faced at the hands of the religious leaders, the, the Jews. So again, I give this caveat pretty frequently. Um, the Jews are painted in a negative light in this, in this gospel, but that's because they're representative of people like us. It's not because, it's not some latent ra racism. It doesn't condone racism against the Jews. They're not the bad guys. Uh, we all are. They're just acting on our behalf in their interactions with Christ. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, um, uh, they, they're, they are the bad guys, but because they're like us, right? And we're like them. So, um, but, but they were the ones at whose hands early Christians were, were facing persecution. The people in charge, the people with power, the people who can make life difficult for others, the people who wield fear to get their way, they'd already made up their minds about Jesus, They've already made up their minds. Uh, to be fair, not every single one of them was prejudiced against Christ, right? The text says that there was a division among them. Maybe you've got someone like Nicodemus, again, uh, asking his questions of the larger group. Um, but generally, the, the leaders, the religious leaders, they were upset about Jesus. They'd already been in serious conflict with him before. He keeps healing people on the Sabbath like they think he's not supposed to do. But he wasn't breaking God's law. He wasn't breaking God's law about the Sabbath. He sure was in violation of their laws, though, in their interpretation of God's law. And, um, and they couldn't stand for that. And they were un unwilling, actually. Uh, one might even say that they were afraid to examine themselves in light of Jesus Christ. They just saw him as a threat and were, were unable to examine themselves and their traditions and their interpretation of the scriptures in light of who Jesus was and who he, who he says he was. They saw him as a threat to their supremacy. He's a threat to their religious power or their cultural power or their political power. And he was a threat to be eradicated and anyone discovered to be on his side should be afraid of them. They should fear us. Right. So they had prejudged the matter. Their minds were closed. They weren't really interested in learning anything new about Jesus, even though they keep asking questions of the blind man and his parents. They keep asking questions. They're not interested in new information about Jesus. They know what they think about him. They just ask their questions to flush out the conspirators. 
And in fact, it's a pretty good description of those who have historically persecuted the church and who still do. Close-minded, strong opinions about Jesus. So the, the blind man that Jesus healed, he finds himself before the tribunal, so to speak. And maybe you remember, uh, there are a lot of parallels here. As we've gone through John's gospel, we mentioned it in chapter 5. There are a lot of parallels with chapter 5 and this passage where in chapter 5, Jesus healed um, an invalid, a handicapped man. And the parallels, the, the similarities and contrasts with that, uh, that in this chapter are very interesting. That that fellow in chapter 5, the invalid who was healed, um, he routed Jesus out to the authorities the first chance he got. He served Jesus up on a platter because he didn't want to get in trouble himself. And this fellow in chapter 9, the blind man, he's actually, the language, he's very careful not to incriminate Jesus with his testimony. The John 5 fellow was afraid of the consequences of being associated with Jesus. He wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus, distance himself officially, formally from Jesus. Uh, the John 9 fellow, our, our blind man, he's interested in Jesus and he hints at even wanting to become a disciple of Jesus. For the John 5 man, you know, he should have had this response of gratitude and praise and faith and trust in Christ and love for Christ, but he, he was, all that was overwhelmed by fear. Fear of what other people would think, basically, and what they would do to him. And the John 9 man is characterized by courage and faithfulness and, and growing boldness, actually. <clears throat> so when Jesus came into this guy's life, the blind man, came into his life, it set him on a new trajectory, and it actually created pretty serious conflict with the people around him. Jesus took this guy out of the world, in a sense. He's no longer of the world, and it, it put a lot of conflict between him and the world. Um, and this conflict was sort of a crucible. It clarified his faith. And, um, and refined his faith. Calvin uh, actually calls the blind man's confidence that we see growing through this passage in his dealings with the, the Pharisees, calls that confidence uh, and courage another miracle right alongside the miracle of the healing of his eyes. <clears throat> because the powers that be were using the biggest threat they could come up with to shut this whole Jesus thing down. It, they threatened with excommunication from the synagogue. They said that anyone who followed Jesus, who supported Jesus, anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ, that is, one who's anointed by God, who came from God to, to fix things, uh, anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ would be desynagogued. He would be outcast. He would be persona non grata. And that was a big deal, a huge deal in that culture. The synagogue was the center of, of regular Jewish life. I mean, you hear stories today about uh, Mormons who um, get excommunicated for this reason or that, and they get totally cut off. They get shunned. They get disowned by their own families. Their own spouses turn away from them when they get excommunicated. 
Uh, and it was like that, but probably more significant. Probably more significant back then, more painful, more shameful in that culture. And in fact, uh, that it's, it just gets right to the heart. Excommunication gets to the heart of the most painful realities of human existence. That's why it's such a big deal, not just in that culture, but really in all cultures. Excommunication. We, we need to belong. We need to have community with God. We were made for deep communion with God and to have community with other people. We're made for that. We need it. We need to belong, and being cut off from that is hell, literally, not figuratively. That's what hell is, being cut off from the community with God and others that you need, that you're made for. Excommunication is a terrible, terrible thing, and that's what they were threatened uh, with back then. And, and anyone associated with Jesus, you're out, and there could be no worse word, out. Do you understand that this is still the case in the world? The world's hostility toward Jesus and the world's hostility toward Jesus' people, it has not worn off. It's not dissipated. It has not grown old. It just looks different because everybody's so nice, at least in our culture. It just looks different. But the conflict is still there, and the fear is still there, the fear of excommunication, right? the fear of being out. Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat, and anyone who represents that threat, like Christians who are talking about Jesus, anyone who reminds them of the threat has to be resisted and ultimately silenced. They have to be cast out. They have to be removed from the picture. And the nice way to cast someone out is just to end relationships, just to walk away and go about your life without texting someone back. Right? That's the nice way to do it. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, you know the fear of that. You know the fear of risking the relationship, putting the relationship at jeopardy by opening your mouth and talking about Jesus, by sharing the gospel with people in your life, people you care about, people you're around all the time. You could end relationships really quickly if you wanted to, not by being a self-righteous religious jerk. You could end relationships by talking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ all the time because people don't want to hear about that. They don't want to hear about Jesus. Be as nice as you want. You can still end relationships by being Christ-centered and, and sharing the gospel with people for their good. And the more cultural power those people have, and the more political power those people have, the more we perceive a, a great threat of persecution. Right? Seems like a more dangerous threat the more powerful people are. The Pharisees were bullies. They were religious bullies. That's what it amounts to. Right? The Pharisees were religious bullies. They accused their enemies of breaking God's law. There's nothing worse you could do than that. 
breaking God's law, when really it was just their distortion of the law that they were enforcing for their own advancement. And in a similar way today, there are secular and moral bullies who accuse their enemies of violating the societal codes. Secular moral bullies that are parallel to the religious bullies that the Pharisees were. If you proclaim the gospel today, if you teach the truth of the scriptures today, as graciously as you like, you run the risk of being labeled a bigot. Bigotry is bad. Everybody knows that. You run the, the risk of being labeled a bigot, being fined for discrimination, being accused of hate speech, and the like. People associated with Jesus are on the outs with the world. They always have been, always will be, in some way, to some degree, right? However that gets expressed. So if you're afraid of the consequences of that, you shut up. If you're afraid of the consequences, you shut up, you direct attention elsewhere, right? Somebody starts asking you about your faith, if you're a Christian, what do you believe? Sort of redirect. You distance yourself from Christ and the church when people are complaining about the hypocrisy of the church and the terrible things the church has done and all the ways the church breaks all the societal codes and doesn't live up to even good, regular atheist standards. You distance yourself from the church. You throw the church under the bus. You say, yeah, I agree with you, right? To be on, on the world's side. Show yourself to be compliant. If your own dear handicapped son is in trouble because of association with Jesus, and it looks like the authorities are swinging their attention to you too now, instead of celebrating your son's healing with tears of gratitude and joy, you throw your son under the bus. He can answer for himself. He might suffer the hell of excommunication, but I sure won't, not on his behalf. This is deeply disturbing, what these parents do. It's deeply disturbing, but actually the worst part is that they're distancing themselves, not just from their son, they're distancing themselves from Jesus by wanting to stay in with the Pharisees, with the synagogue, with the culture, with their community, with the world. And in distancing themselves from Jesus, they do distance themselves from others who are associated with Jesus, even their own son. Why? Why do they do it? It's written right there, fear. They do it because of fear. Their love for their own son is overridden by their fear. They fear being out. They fear estrangement. They fear separation and isolation at the hands of the authorities. And it's really too bad. It's for them and for all kinds of people. It's really too bad because fear is a terrible way to live. And it actually leads us straight away that the love, straight away from the love that we are so desperate for, that we need. Here's the good news you don't need to fear the authorities. The ultimate authority in the universe doesn't want you to be afraid. He actually commands it several hundred times in the Scriptures, more than any other command. 
do not be afraid. The ultimate authority in the universe doesn't want you to live in fear. He wants you to know that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are accepted, and that you are welcome, and that the separation between you and God has ended. The estrangement, being out, is over. He has not isolated you. He has come to you. God came in the person of His Son incarnate, Jesus Christ. He came to take away your fear of rejection. He came to take away your fear of hell, of excommunication, of living away, living apart from God, your fear of being cast out on the most important level. Jesus didn't didn't leave us to suffer the hell of excommunication on our own. He came to suffer it on our behalf at the cross. He suffered ultimate cosmic excommunication in our place, on our behalf, at the cross, which is exactly what these parents were unwilling to do for their own son, to suffer excommunication on his behalf. God sent his son to do it for us, for you. Isaiah 49, can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. This blind man's parents, his own parents had abandoned him. But he would learn that Jesus, who is sent by God, would never abandon him. The powers that be were angry. They wanted him to be afraid, and eventually they did cast him out of the synagogue. But he knew something of Jesus, not much. But he had something. He had something of Jesus to hold on to, something very important. He knew that Jesus had come to him. He knew that Jesus found him. Jesus saw him. Jesus was interested in him. He took an interest. He noticed him. Jesus was kind to him. Jesus touched him. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus healed him. That means Jesus was good to him. Jesus had said, we. And he was talking about him. This this blind man was included with Jesus. He was in. Jesus was not afraid to be associated with him, a blind beggar. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with you. He's not ashamed to be called your brother. Jesus is invested in you. He's all in. He's for you. He wants to be with you, strange as that might sound. God doesn't care who knows that you're part of his family. He doesn't care who knows. In fact, he wants everyone to know that you, even you, are part of his family. You're his own child in the beloved, in Jesus Christ, through faith in him. How sad, really how sad, how pitiful are the threats of those in the world who are prejudiced against Jesus in light of the divine solidarity that's pledged to us in the love of Jesus Christ. Compare and contrast those two things. Those who persecute the church, they should want to become Jesus' disciples too. I mean, there's something of irony in what this blind man says as he's starting to get bold in his interactions with the Pharisees here, the Jews here. 
Do you also want to become his disciples? Well, they should. They should. They're, in, a, in some distorted way, they're looking for acceptance. They're afraid of rejection. They're looking for it apart from Christ. They want to be in. The Pharisees, they want to be the in crowd. They want to be accepted because of who they are. But in truth, that's just the way of schism. That's the way of relational disintegration as they resist the God of love and grace who says, you can be in, but it's not because of who you are. It's because of who I am. It's because of who Christ is and what he's done. These people are afraid. They're acting out of fear. Their anger is an expression of their fear, their hatred, the way they cast this man out. They're afraid, and they're afraid to know their fear. They're afraid to know that they've chosen the path of self-excommunication. Ultimately, really, in reality, by opposing God and, and by opposing other people. Other people can go to hell for all they're concerned. And that, that itself is hell, to have that attitude. But no one has to fear the hell of rejection. No one has to fear that. No one has to fear the hell, hell of rejection. A little wisdom from Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord, Guardians of the Galaxy. Sometimes that thing you're searching for your whole life, it's right there by your side with you the whole time, and you didn't even know it. That thing you're searching for your whole life, it's right there. The gospel says that the triune God, with his forgiveness and his acceptance, he's been there the whole time, right there with you. And we're in. We're really in. We're all the way in to the core in God's own heart, not because we did something right, not because we thought something right, we're in because of who Jesus is and because of our spiritual affiliation to him, our association with him, our connection, our spiritual union. And that gospel, the gospel that says our relationship with the Father cannot be threatened. We will not face the Father's rejection because of Jesus Christ, because of his grace to us. That's the source of our courage. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the divine person who is the Father's Son to the relationship irrevocably given to us. We have the Holy Spirit. God has so loved us and accepted us that he dwells in us everywhere we go. We're accepted by him. Everywhere we go. And he even extends his love to others through people like us because of his Holy Spirit who lives in us. So what is it then when people threaten or actually even do walk away from us and cast us out or seek to harm us for our faith in Jesus Christ? What is that? I mean, it's sad. It's painful. Maybe most of all, it's sad and painful for them. But you don't need to be afraid of them. The threat of fear of rejection is swallowed up in the pledge of eternal love that we have in Christ. There's no mental trick. There's no formula to remember when you face the suffering and the fear of persecution. There's, it's not just, you know, get your mind in the right spot and figure these things out and then you'll be able to do it right uh, to remember to help you endure persecution. 
there's the personal presence of the very real Jesus Christ who has not been silent. He's come to you, Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to be with us, to be with you, and he has spoken, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And you can hold on to that. You can hold on to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is something remarkable in the life of this blind man who uh, you healed through the, the gift of grace of your son, Jesus Christ. More, more importantly than uh, the healing of his physical sight, the restoration of his relationship to you where his life was changed and kept changing and he, he grew bolder even in the face of really serious persecution. And um, we pray for that that same thing to be at work in us through our relationship with Jesus. We pray that you would help us to have a vision of Jesus Christ as, um, as glorious, as the one we need, and as the one that we have because of your will, because uh, it was your desire to be with us and not without us. And so you came into the world to be with us and to never leave us or forsake us. We pray that you would keep us always in remembrance of this, Keep Christ in our hearts and in our minds and grant us gospel courage as we face uh, real persecutions, um, physical or psychological, major or minor in this world. Uh, We pray that our association with you through Jesus Christ would be more compelling than our association with the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.